0: This is the Legal Impact, a weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for J.D. and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host. and Do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and we are back with another in our series of speaking with professors at the Intellectual Property Summer Institute that we host every year. You can learn. Every, you can learn more about it at law.unh.edu/ipsi. Excited to be joined by Adjunct Professor Chris Reed, who's an alum from 2006 in the JD and LLM programs, and is an LA-based media and entertainment lawyer. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So you are uh, you, your expertise is in media law. So we've we've dragged you up various <laughs> times to talk to talk about it with our students in uh, Los Angeles as well as here in Concord and online as part of the the Ipsy program. It, there's so many ways that uh, the media deals with intellectual property. What are some highlights for someone that may not think of IP and media, what those relationships are like? Yeah,
1: so uh, I'm glad you started with that, actually, because I you know, I came to Franklin Pierce to get an education in copyright law. I always wanted to be a copyright lawyer, but I'd always been interested in media and entertainment as a kid. And I think part of the reason they're so intertwined is that fundamentally, media, uh, the media industry is really focused on creating content for people to consume. Right, and that takes the traditional role of books, uh, you know, uh, book publishers, and film studios, and, and record labels and music publishers. But nowadays, we're starting to see that anybody can be a media "quote unquote" professional. Right, you can be a TikTok star, you can post on Facebook, you can have a blog. Um, and so, I think you know the, the 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 connection between media law and IP is that media law is all about the production of IP. Mm-hmm. Right, and so in in the media law class that I teach, we talk a lot about. IP issues, but we also talk about things like defamation and slander and rights of publicity and privacy. Um, these days, we're even talking about antitrust a fair amount because that's become a big issue in the, in the space. So um, all of that is to say, I think it it is you know it is intertwined with IP, but it's there's also it's also sort of a, a meta topic in that it's about the production uh, of of IP.
0: And graduating in 2006 from, from uh, here at Franklin Pierce, that was like the the spark of social media blowing mm-hmm. up when the 2008 pres- presidential election was huge when it came to especially Twitter becoming really relevant in the world of news. Uh, what was it like then compared to now with regards to mainstream media taking advantage of these new platforms? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's changed a lot, right? So back in, in 2006, you're right, it was just the dawn of the social media age. I remember um, having to use my uh, UNH email account to get onto Facebook because it was still restricted to to students at the time. But uh, it's changed dramatically. I'd say one of the biggest ways it's changed is that you know, the core doctrines of media law haven't really changed that much. The distribution mechanism, which is what you're alluding to, has, uh, which means we have to think about new things. Sometimes that actually um, is sort of, uh, it, it frees us a little bit. So, for example, a traditional broadcaster has to think about FCC regulations and what they can and can't say on the air. A podcaster does not have those right. restrictions, and so we're starting to see, you know, traditional media organizations getting into what we used to call back in 2006 new media, mm-hmm. which is now just media. Um, and then for a while there was a buzzword calling it convergence, where everything was coming together. We've sort of thankfully abandoned yes. that. We just think of it as media now. Um, but if you're a company like you know NPR, for instance, right, they produce radio programming. They have to make sure that it satisfies uh, FCC requirements and certain other rules. Um, but for their podcasts, they also have a Major podcast platform, they don't. Um, And so you have to, we as media lawyers now have to sort of think in two tracks like, what is the ultimate goal for this particular particular property? Um, In in the video space, same kind of thing there's the traditional broadcast networks, there's over the air television, um, but then everybody's switching to streaming. Right, no, Virtually no regulation on the content of streaming. Lots of other regulations on streaming, but not, not the content. And so I'd say that's really how it's changed a lot. The fundamentals haven't changed. The way we apply them in the new world has changed pretty dramatically.
0: And my Professor Michael McCann's a regular on the show, so I get the feeling there's a lot of overlap when it comes to the sports industry mm-hmm. and in the uh, more broadcast and entertainment uh, side of things. And uh, antitrust is a common thing that's mm-hmm. always brought up in, in the world of wh- where you are. Where does antitrust play into it? I'm used to hearing from the world of the NCAA and name, image, and likeness. Right. Is it still NIL? Is it and so, what other aspects are there with it?
1: Yeah. So the the big thing in, in antitrust in the media industry is this rush for scale. Mm-hmm. So we've started to see that. To, to fuel all these streaming services that everybody wants to have, you need big content libraries, right? So we've started to see a lot more uh, major mergers going on. I think the biggest in recent memory is probably the Walt Disney Company's acquisition of 21st Century Fox back in 2017, or announced in 2017 and, and uh, finalized in 2019. Um, Amazon recently bought MGM. As I was flying here yesterday, I saw news breaking that Roku and Netflix um, are flirting, oh, wow. um, which could be interesting. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes sense, right? Netflix is, has been saying they want to get into ad supported, uh, offer an ad supported tier. Roku knows how to do ad insertion, and so it sort of makes a lot of sense why those two companies would merge. But the scale, you know, some of the the value, uh, the valuations of these companies is just staggering, and it creates, arguably creates. Um, competitive problems in the landscape for the distribution uh, you get a little it gets a little tricky when you talk about antitrust in the content production space because the barriers to entry are really low yeah. right so any you know yes it's true that there are a handful of major movie studios but at the same time you or I using consumer grade equipment could produce a movie and put it on YouTube right uh, and that actually leads me to another area where we're seeing some antitrust scrutiny is on those internet platforms so it's true that you and I can go put something on YouTube um, or Facebook or any of these these online platforms um, but we're beholden to the platform and those rules, right? And then they have, they're primarily ad-supported, uh, and that creates potential competitive problems as well. So, we're starting to see uh, some scrutiny in that space in the ad ad market and things like that.
0: It must be interesting when uh, the, these media companies are beginning to court new talent. Because now you have to figure out, I think NHPR is a great example of this, where as a millennial, I think the the NPR and NPR Politics podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, what's the other the younger guy that's on there? Uh, Sam something. Sorry, I'm forgetting his, his name. Is Sam Sanders? Like mm-hmm. his, his show. He he's sort of on the air, but he's known for his, his being on the NPR podcast, starting his It's Been a Minute podcast mm-hmm. and things like that. And I'd imagine if they're looking at him, they're saying this is a digital first talent versus uh, their their morning show talent. Mm-hmm. What's Is this getting more complex? Is it the ability for them to diversify? Is it a balance between the two?
1: Uh, well, at the risk of, of improperly or, or misappropriating a term from, from yesteryear, I'll use the term convergence again. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're seeing, right? We're, we're seeing media organizations hire talent for the purpose of creating content, and then they'll figure out where to put it. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, I, you mentioned NHPR. I lis- I live in Los Angeles. I don't get NHPR over the air, obviously. I listen to several of their podcasts. Um, they do great work, right? They do great investigative work. Um, I would suspect that what we will see, and I think some of these companies do this, they will produce things for podcasts, and if they are successful, they'll put them on the air. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes vice versa, they'll do a story on the air. But you only have, you know, the nature of broadcast is you only have a few minutes to tell a story. You can do a much more expanded version on a podcast. You know, one of the other things with digital media or these new distribution mechanisms is you're not beholden to, you know, what in the the industry we call the clock, right? So you have, in radio, you have an hour and it's divided up into these little segments. Um, In television, you have, you know, a a TV show usually has to hit five or six act breaks uh, because that's where the commercials go in between Mm -hmm. each one. With streaming technology, you can insert the commercials wherever you want if it's ad supported. not, you don't have to do that, and I think the talent um, appreciate the freedom that some of these newer distribution mechanisms give them, but they also appreciate the reach that the traditional models have. Because despite what everyone says about radio dying and, and TV dying, uh, it's not and it won't anytime soon, I don't think. It's just another mechanism of distributing, uh, found new life, yeah,
0: exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, as someone who works. Uh, works in the media industry for sure. You see like TV now is known for HBO with their enormous digital platform right. where you're able to get more artsy. You don't have to care about those time limits. Like you're seeing episodes that are 40 minutes to 90 minutes yeah. <laughs> because they can and it, it must enable the creators a lot more flexibility.
1: Yeah, and it also, it gives more content to the audience, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, we're, we're speaking on, I think last week or this week is the 20th anniversary of The Wire, which was Not one well, of the shows yeah. that put HBO on the map. And they've launched, I mean, this is a great example of, of how all this goes together. They've launched a podcast where they're interviewing cast and crew and the talent and the creator of uh, of the show um, to talk about kind of what it was like to make it and all that. And, of course, they're promoting watch the entire series on HBO Max, which is the Discovery a Warner Brothers Discovery uh, streaming service. Mm -hmm. And so they're using the new technology to get the content out in front of more people. And so ultimately, to go back to your antitrust question, there's an argument to be made that it's all pro-consumer. Like They wouldn't be able to make that all available if they didn't have the infrastructure on the back end to do it, and it takes scale to get to that infrastructure
0: this is something I didn't have to talk to you about, about ahead of time, but it's really interesting to pick your brain on is the fact that new media like this, like we're sitting here with a couple hundred dollars worth of microphones mm-hmm. and we're able to push out something that could go on every social media platform very quickly. That also in turn means you have all these talent out there that have the ability to on their own, in addition to what they're doing for in their corporate job, be able to produce content and get it out there um like uh, something that stands out to me and as someone who lives in the tech world is linus tech tips or linus media group which is a technology youtube channel his staff will as their own twitter accounts they openly promote it and say hey follow such and such hosts he's on twitter he, he's on twitch every every so often follow his gaming channel on there and see it is this gonna are are the ma- the larger companies open to to this, or is this something you're more seeing in the smaller creator space? Or sort of saying, we we're building talent here that we're hoping will ultimately drive to the primary channel, like Linus Media Group. Eventually, hopefully, they'll go buy some merch over in the Linus Media Group <laughs> store, of course. But they, uh, but it's a give and take when it comes to this.
1: Yeah, I think every media organization has their own policy, but we're seeing. An increasing kind of what you're describing is this phenomenon where the goodwill of the talent used to be tied to the venue in which the talent was presented. So, like in local broadcasting, for instance, you knew so and so was the major anchor on Channel Five, right? And and they their goodwill was associated with Channel Five or being an anchor in that market. Now, in local broadcasting, you see in the you know the lower third when they're on the air, they always have their Twitter handle or their Instagram handle they, in most cases, they take that with them if they leave the station, right? right? And so I think that's something companies have to grapple with, because on the one hand, it's the media organization that's given that person the platform. Um, On the other hand, they're the ones that sort of nurtured the fan base. And so there are arguments on both sides. And I think ultimately that comes down to a policy decision of the media organization that these, these folks work for.
0: So in the world, looking in the course description, is news distribution. Mm-hmm. And what, how has that changed over the last uh, several years? Like nowadays in New Hampshire locally, we're seeing digital first news outlets uh, really blow up. Like New Hampshire Bulletin, New Hampshire Journal, both a, a centrist government-focused outlet and then a conservative political-oriented outlet. Uh, are we seeing this more and more? Do you feel like this might be the future of this? And what are the IP implications of this digital first? news outlets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to the answer I gave earlier about the IP implications. I think it's it's the same um, mm-hmm. as, as it always has been. I think the difference now is there's just so much more content. And to your point, you can produce much more targeted content, right. more cost-effectively. So, you know, you take New Hampshire as an example. New Hampshire has a handful of um, li- TV stations that are licensed here. And for the most part, it gets its television from, from Boston. It doesn't make sense if you're a in a small community in New Hampshire to have a television station because there's not enough people there to make that economically viable, it might make sense though to have a streaming video service, right, for that same community. And so you can get a lot more targeted um, with the media. And we've seen some some of the local again to continue to, to sort of um, shout out to local broadcasters. We've seen that where they're launching. I think Hearst, who owns WCVB mm-hmm. in, in Boston, they have in each of their markets they have a digital channel that is all local programming all the time. It's sort of lifestyle type. Type content. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And then going back to your IP question, again, it's just there's a lot more content to worry about. So that means not only do they have a lot of content to protect because uh, they're the copyright owner of the, is the producer, but also they've got to either Produce all that content, or or license it in, and so it just creates more. There's just more of it. There's more opportunity for people creating content, and that means more opportunities for people creating the raw materials. You know, the music, the images, the footage that all goes into that all
0: has to be either created internally or licensed in. Yeah, that, that's a, that's something a lot of people don't consider. It's like, create this documentary for me on such and such, and I want this song in it. It's like, right. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either expect to, to pay a lot, either over a term of time, and then you got to remove your video, right, or you. You figure out some other music to go in there, and so that doesn't seem like that's changed at all in modern times. There may be more royalty-free options out there, but it's still the same you know, copyright issues.
1: Yeah, I think what that's really done is pushed a lot of the the music libraries, and, and this is true for photography as well, stock photos, right? Yes. So it used to be that stock photography, you had to license for thousands of dollars per use, and you had to describe. Specifically, what you were going to do with the image? I'm going to use it in this book on this page for so many editions. You can print so many copies, and after that, it's done. Uh, now we're seeing a big push towards royalty-free media that's used in these things like documentaries and stuff because the the peep the producers don't want to deal with all these licensing right. terms, and that's put an enormous downward pressure on the pricing for production music and stock photography. Uh, so there's that dynamic, and then the other thing it's or the other thing that's sort of generated that uh, or led to that is that anyone can do it now right so as we were talking about earlier with with producing this podcast um you or i with relatively inexpensive equipment can be a quote-unquote professional photographer or create professional looking photos so i don't need to license them from a traditional stock house anymore and same thing with music i'm not even slightly musical but people i know people who are and they could take a laptop and create you know amazing pieces of music that could be used in a documentary production uh, or a podcast or whatever. That all puts downward pressure on these sort of the traditional music library model, the traditional stock photo uh, model as well.
0: Yeah, and then the mainstream social media platforms out there capitalize on it by either or, or trying to enable the more mainstream uh, music outlets are now partnering with like Sony and such. And Sony's an example. I don't know if Sony partners with them or not, but you can get a lot of their music if you post it in YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can put it into your videos because you're using it on their platform they've struck an agreement, which causes all sorts of uh, relationship advantages to keep Yahoo in the, the good graces of Sony yeah. or Columbia or whatever. Well, i have got on my
1: soapbox for a minute. One yeah. of my frustrations as somebody who represents the content industry is that the reason all those deals got made was because YouTube and others in that space had basically built machines that were sort of perfect for infringement, right? So people were posting this stuff anyway, and we do have a legal regime that allows copyright owners to have that stuff taken down under the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, the provision most commonly known as the notice to take down provisions. what Google, I think, smartly did was built a system called Content ID, which allowed its allowed rights owners to monetize against that content rather than take it down. That has another key feature, which is that it allows Google to monetize it as well, right? Because yes. it's a rev split. <laughs> and so I, you know, they, it's great that content owners have Content ID. But I'm not sure it was entirely motivated by an interest of quelling piracy on the platform. It was probably more about the advertising revenue that they're generating as a result of that.
0: And there's been so many lawsuits in recent years of the overly aggressive copy ID system that's in there, where uh, some video from 15, 20 years ago kind of, sort of sounds like it, and now the, a YouTube creator gets their channel taken offline.
1: Right, and there there are mechanisms in the law that prevent that from, or or allow that content creator to respond with a counter notice, and there there's actually within the content ID system. You're not even in the land of the DMCA yet. You kind of I call it the shadow DMCA because you're sort of you're you're playing within the Google terms of service. And so there's this whole thing back and forth between the rights owner and the and the YouTube video poster. Only when that has been exhausted do you get to the DMCA. And even then uh, the content owner, or sorry, the, the, the poster of the video has some redress by, by issuing a, a counter notice, um, whereas a content owner whose work is being infringed, the only choice at that point once a counter notice has been issued is to sue the person for infringement, which is an enormous undertaking, it's expensive, there's bad PR, all that sort of thing. So it's, again, still on my soapbox. It, my position is the DMCA is a little imbalanced in favor of online service providers right now. Uh, so going back to the, the broader topic of you know issues in media law, I think this is one of the big ones for content owners. You know, anti-piracy has always been an issue. It's especially challenging now when you can have perfect copies of things sent all over the world on the internet uh, within a matter of seconds, right? By click of a button on your phone or your laptop or whatever.
0: So in the last minute here, what are some topics people should keep an eye out for in the realm of media law, whether it's digital broadcast or talent searching, things like that? Yeah, so I'd say that what we just talked about, I think anti-piracy is
1: going to be a big deal going forward. I think we'll see a lot more opportunities for partnership. I think uh, a lot of the rights owners are starting to see it more. As a business opportunity, uh, as opposed to something that they have to stop necessarily. Um, some there's different views on whether that's that's good or bad. The other big thing is antitrust, uh, where we we sort of started this conversation. I think that's going to continue to get some scrutiny. It's going to be challenging because we have, you know, for the most part, our antitrust doctrine is based on you know steel mills and cement plants, uh, and it's it, we don't have a great. Um, lens yet through a legal lens through which to to kind of view some of these issues in the space, uh, and then the other thing I'd mention is kind of related to the DMCA in a way, which is um, Section two hundred and thirty, which we didn't really get into a whole lot, but it's it's sort of a companion to the DMCA in the sense that it creates an immunity for uh, online service providers that does not exist for publishers in the sort of traditional media space. And yet, uh, the argument is that a lot of these online providers are starting to act an awful lot like publishers by using algorithms to serve up certain content to you. And so it's an interesting it's an interesting give and take. Um, the tech sector, of course, does not want any changes to 230. The content industry would love to see some, uh, some improvements there. So uh, we'll see. I think those are kind of major open issues. I don't think they'll be solved quickly, so there'll be
0: plenty of fodder for, you know, uh, law students of the future. Definitely will get you back on at some point and talk <laughs> Section 230. So There's a lot with that for sure. Adjunct Professor Chris Reed, an alum in, of the JD and LLM program, 2006, and L.A.-based media and entertainment lawyer. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Tell us spread a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at slash podcast.